This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. As you no doubt heard, the Neville Lake family is suing the Muzo family, or at least Marco Muzo, I should say, uh, in the crash that killed Daniel Harrison and Millie and their grandfather. How do you arrive at such figures and... um, and put a value on something like this. To talk more about all of this, Joseph Newberger is with us, uh, criminal lawyer with Newberger and Partners LLP and with us now. Hello, Joseph. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? Good. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Boy, what a what a horrific topic this is to talk about. Um, but how do you arrive at, at dollar values when you're talking about horrific tragedies like this? Well, it's very difficult. In the, in the field of um, you know, personal injury and wrongful death, which is not something I practice, but there are guidelines that are set out with respect to when you lose a partner, a father, a child, etc. And there are uh, actuarial calculations that you can do uh, pertaining to loss of income, etc. And in, in this case as well, I mean, both parents it's such an enormous tragedy that you know you can hardly imagine how they're able to get up each morning and, and function. So they're also not really in a position to earn an income right now, and it may be for a very considerable period of time they will not be able to return to work. So there's a quantification for that. Over and above that, there's also punitive damages that can be obtained because of the nature of the crime in this case. And uh, it's not a homicide, but it is extremely serious uh, crime that wiped out a whole family. So, How would you arrive just at that figure? Uh, well, again, there's also guidelines. There's other case law that, that would assist you on it. Um, and uh, those are definitely in the millions. Um, it's very hard to put the price on the loss of a life and a child. And, you know, in, in law you could calculate that at some point a child becomes uh, a worker and then that person might wind up taking care of the, the family. And so there's a quantification of that potential income. But, you know, when they're so young, you have no idea as to what work they're going to do. It's different than if somebody was, let's say, an accountant, for example. Mm-hmm. It's all very hard to put the number together, but you can arrive at numbers. And in this case, in my humble opinion, I don't think the the numbers are going to be that out that difficult to come to terms with because if I was counsel acting for uh, Mr. Muzo and also for the company because the, the company was sued as well because mm-hmm. they were the registered owner of the car, I would work fairly swiftly on um, bona fide good faith negotiations with the lawyer for the plaintiffs to try and arrive at a reasonable number for settlement that would take care of this family going forward for the rest of their lives to ensure that they have enough in place not only for their income to survive, but also are receiving the psychological help that they can. And frankly, you know, you'd look at something else maybe that you could do long-term for the benefit of, uh, of others in some way uh, related to um, these types of tragedies. So I, I would engage in meaningful negotiations right away to arrive at a number uh, and it certainly will be in the millions. There's no doubt about that. Um, and, and, and are you surprised that we're even talking about this and this all hasn't sort of been settled quietly? Um, no. No, I, I, I think earlier on when we were speaking, and I was, I was giving some commentary about this case, there was some discussion about com- compensatory payment to the family by the Muzo family. And we had talked about that most likely there will be a, a, a lawsuit that will come. So this is not a surprise. And, you know, the case just completed a short time ago, so the claim was filed in April. Now it's sort of heating up because a a statement of defense has to be filed. 
and that's why it's come to light now. But these things actually do take a bit of time to come through, um, and any sort of application like this or lawsuit would definitely garner tremendous public attention, and so mm. it doesn't surprise me that it's come to the fore now. Uh, does a claim have to be filed? I guess my point is, is does, uh, does the Neville Lake family have to go to all of this trouble just to have, you know, just to settle all this? No. Um, so uh, lawsuits typically start by having some letter sent by your lawyer to the other side, like a demand letter saying, we are uh, commencing uh, proceedings against you, uh, here's why. And uh, in many cases, an actual statement of claim won't get filed, and the parties will start to negotiate early on. However, in this case, I believe that um, because of the enormous tragedy and the pain that they are suffering, and of course, you and I don't know what went on behind the scenes. We don't know if there were some discussions, because there's some language in the lawsuit. um, I don't have it at the tip of my tongue right now, but sort of a high-handed approach by the defendant, uh, there, there may have been some discussions that were going on that were going nowhere, and so they had to get to mm-hmm. to this point. Yeah. But um, given the enormity of this tragedy, I'm not surprised that they filed a fairly detailed statement of claim. Uh, what about the amount? Does that seem average, normal? What, I mean, is there anything normal in something like this? No. In Canada, again, this is not my sort of my area of practice, but in Canada we're not known for the enormous damages that are awarded in the United States. Ours are generally much lower. So this is an extremely large amount of money uh, for a Canadian lawsuit. Nevertheless, uh, the precedent in this case can be set because you've, you've wiped, this guy's wiped out a whole family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, the punitive damages alone, I think, would set a, a new benchmark. Hmm. Uh, you talked about he and the company as well because the company was the registered uh, owner of the car. What responsibility does a company have over uh, an employee or someone who drives their vehicles? Uh, well, uh, any company who owns a vehicle has to have it um, insured and also working properly. So in this case, there's some claim about the brakes not working properly so that the car wasn't kept in proper condition to be driven. Um, and then when you have an employee of a company commit an act, we call it vicarious liability. So if they're using um, any sort of property from the company that's involved in uh, any civil or criminal conduct, the corporation will bear uh, vicarious liability for that. And in this case, the company might have far more assets than Mr. Muzo himself that are personally in his name. Mm-hmm. So that's why you would definitely name the company. Uh, the fact that he was or wasn't on company business at the time, that doesn't matter? No, not really. I mean, you could try in your statement of defense to say that, um, you know, it's simply just registered to the company, but it's not really a company car. It's just owned and operated. This was off company business. And you could allege that, but I, I, I'm not sure that'll go very far. And again, really, uh, it would be uh, tremendously silly, I think, for the defendants to ever get that far in litigation. I mean, this this is something where you would really want to try and settle and not have to go to a trial. It would be a very ugly proceeding, and you can imagine the pain for the family to have to relive it now through the civil process, which can drag out for a long period of time, and you have a number of attendances like discoveries and other things, which would be just so emotionally traumatic for them. I would hate to see that happen. Uh, you talked about the condition of the vehicle, and there's been some chatter about brakes. Uh, what sort of factor would that play in that, in, in, in all of this, and, and who would be responsible? Yeah, well, the company would be responsible. Um, I'm not, and, you know, it also depends on whether uh, 
you know, the um, the dealership that was uh, maintaining the car might have some liability in that regard. I, I'm not sure about the actual forensics on it. I mean, mm-hmm. the idea was that he had been stepping on the brakes for 3.5 seconds or some amount of time, and the car was still going at a high rate of speed. Um, I'm not sure that even if the brakes were 100% operational, it might have made a huge difference because he was traveling at such a high rate of speed originally. Um, but um, certainly the, the company itself bears responsibility, and then if the car is regularly serviced, whatever corporation it's serviced with uh, may be partially responsible because they didn't do what they were supposed to do as well. And so the defendants could, what they say in the business, could cross-claim against another company to try and apportion liability to them. Hmm. Um, Complex. Very complex process. Well, and you know, I, I, lots are trying to figure out, you know, exactly with the with the amount of money put on this, how that is arrived at, and and trying to put value on on a family. Whereas, as you've explained it, it's it's more about how this family survives moving forward. Uh, the fact that they probably can't work anymore, that that uh, their lives are going to be in shambles for for a long period to come. That's right. I mean. There is a math to this, so there is a calculation, and, and the lawyer acting for the plaintiffs is extremely experienced in this type of litigation. So he would look at the loss of income, uh, what would be the standards for loss of family members, uh, future potential income. He would look at all that and do those calculations, but you also look at psychological help and then the long-term impact, and then, as I said, the, the punitive damages for the horrific act itself. Uh, do you think this will make it to litigation? Will it get that far, or will this be settled? I, I can't imagine it would. I think this would be settled. It's in the interest of everybody that this should settle. Um, and, you know, just as being a normal, uh, casual observer, I would hope for the emotions of both families and for their mental health that this would get settled uh, sooner than later. Uh, obviously, you've uh, you've been practicing law for a while. There's lots of big cases that come and go. How does this one stand out? Will this have a, lo- a lasting impact with people? I think it will remain in people's memories. You know, sadly, there are a lot of uh, deaths caused by impaired driving, and many do not get this type of attention. Yes, mm-hmm. this involves, you know, a young family uh, that's wiped out, but there are, you know, others with multiple casualties that you haven't heard about. It's just Unfortunately, or fortunately, the the defendant himself uh, and family is so so prominent in the community, it's garnered so much attention. But I think it does, you know, uh, bring to the fore that impaired driving and death by impaired driving is still an extremely relevant issue that, unfortunately, the message isn't getting out there for people to to drive uh, only when they're sober. So I think this will have a lasting impact. I hope it will. I hope it'll uh, have an impact on future drivers. I mean, I'm, I'm a criminal lawyer, and I still see a number of cases coming in uh, of impaired driving, and you know, we all have to be vigilant to, to educate uh, society not to do this. How do you defend against something like that? It, it must be reasonably cut and dry once you wade through the technicalities. Uh, yeah, they are. I mean, uh, there, there, there was a change in legislation back in 2008, and so there are some very narrow substantive defenses, and then sometimes there are, you know, as we call them, technical defenses or constitutional uh, challenges that can be made. Um, so there's there's narrow areas where the cases can be uh, uh, can be defended, but um, they're not numerous ways that, that you can. And in many cases, they are rather cut and dry, and the police 
do a very good job of uh, investigating, getting the readings, and obeying everybody's constitutional rights. So, um, you know, I, I suspect that the conviction rate still remains rather high. That being said, uh, there's just a lot of these cases still, and that that's something that needs to be dealt with. Hmm. And now, of course, add to that distracted driving, which, you know, uh, from what we hear, the stats are approaching, if not passing, uh, impaired driving. Yeah, and, you know, and, and it's something, I, you know, I'll have to say this. I, I, I hope it doesn't get criminalized because we already have a lot of criminal laws on the books. And distracted driving, if it results in a fatality, uh, easily is a dangerous driving causing death um, or even a criminal negligence causing death. It, we don't need... Um, we don't need the uh, the added offense, but it just goes to show that when you know when you're in your car, a lot of people think it's an automatic process, and attention can be divided. And unfortunately, with all the technology we have in the cars and on our phones, etc., that it's so easy to be distracted. But within a split second, a tragedy can occur. Joseph Newberger has been with us, Newberger and Partners LLP. Joseph, as always, thanks for the to- uh, the comment. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, just when you thought Donald really couldn't say anything more to embarrass himself, uh, now he's handed over the, uh, the duty to his son. Uh, Donald Trump Jr. making waves this week. Uh, he tweeted out an image of a bowl of Skittles. And, you know, I, I guess this caption or, or this, uh, this tweet has been used several times to, to point out different things. It's uh, certainly nothing new, but certainly it is when it's uh, referred to uh, Syrian refugees. So uh, Trump Jr., uh, he tweets out an image of a bowl of Skittles with the caption, if I told you three were poisoned, would you take any? That is our Syrian refugee problem. To talk more about all of this, oh, I should also say that uh, before we get into this, that Skittles did respond to this. And uh, Skittles, uh, the parent company Wrigley Americas, uh, did its, uh, I guess, quite quickly tried to distance itself from all of this and basically said, quote, "Uh, Skittles are candy. Refugees are people. We don't feel it's an appropriate analogy, said the vice president. Uh, We will uh, respectfully refrain from further commentary as anything we say could be misinterpreted as marketing. Uh, what else could they say? To talk more about all of this, Barry Kay is with us, political science professor, Wilfrid Laurier University. He's on the line with us now. Hello, Barry. How are you today? Oh, I'm fine. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Uh, I guess we find that the fruit doesn't fall too far from the tree, or in this case, the skittles from the bowl. Um, that was just the metaphor I was thinking of using before <laughs> you mentioned it. Yeah. Uh, so uh, what does this say? What does this do? Well, it puts Donald back in the news. Uh, you know, there's a theory about Donald Trump that suggests that he has this feeling that any any uh, media coverage is good coverage, whether it seems to be positive or not. And there's been something to it. He hasn't been harmed nearly as much. He's been harmed at times. But he hasn't been harmed nearly as much as most politicians would be for, for making controversial statements. However, that said, uh, the fact is that when you start to look at the um, ups and downs of the public opinion polls in recent weeks and months, that in fact Trump has not always been leading. He was leading. Well, he was never really leading, and he isn't really leading now. But there have been times where he's been very competitive, and that's the point we seem to have been arriving at. But then, in fact, following the uh, the conventions, in fact, the Democrats picked up, and he was giving a number of very controversial stories, including the story about um, the the Mexi- the judge of Mexican heritage heritage been being unable to um, to make a fair judgment on him the story about the gold star family the uh, the, the Islamic family who in fact had lost a son 
um, in uh, in the war in Iraq and so forth. Um, and at that time, he started to decline. Now, lately, Hillary has been more in the news than he has uh, with her, her various problems. And I don't want to suggest she's free of problems. She has plenty herself. But that when Hillary became the focus of the story, um, in fact, Donald Trump started to do a little bit better and was, was very much rising the polls and making it a very competitive race. Now, this is just one item, and I don't want to suggest that this, is, this story is going to be definitive. I don't think we're going to be talking about it a week from today. But there's other stories coming out now as well, including the fact that his, his uh, charitable funds, which were in, probably improperly collected in many ways as well, are now being spent on... Um, the, these are funds for the, the, Trump, uh, the Trump charity, or the Trump Foundation, I guess it's called, were being used to buy portraits of himself and were being used to pay um, legal bills. Uh, that, in fact, if Donald starts being the story again, even though he loves being the story, um, that may very well hurt him. And there was, in fact, a poll that just came out, this, I think it was this morning, um, that for the first time, Hillary has now reversed momentum, and she is now up by a few points. This was an NBC-related poll that had her up five points. Now, look, the election is still, um, what, something like seven weeks away. Lots of things can happen between now and then, uh, and we will be talking about lots more things between now and November 8th. However, a case can be made that whoever is at the center of the news, be it Trump or Hillary, if they're adversely in the news, that in fact it helps the other candidate. Why is he not judged like other politicians? You said earlier, and we've talked about this many times, Barry, that there were times that he had said things that most would think he would be out if any other candidate had said it. He just seems to ride the wave. Uh, he certainly says lots that's wrong, but he seems to say just enough to appeal to some people. He's an anti-politician, and indeed he's sort of tapped in, and, and there is certainly even though I'm critical of Trump in most ways, um, he certainly has been a genius at marketing, a genius in being able to, to use the media to his own benefit, and, and frankly, a genius in being able to tap into discontent among, among a certain segment of the American population who, uh, who feel that the elites, that the system is rigged and the elites are getting all sorts of breaks. And in truth, of course, he's the, um, he, he, he's the poster boy of an elite getting breaks. Nonetheless, by attacking the media and attacking other politicians, including those in his own newly adopted party. Remember, he is not a longtime Republican. He's probably been a Democrat for more of his life than he's been a Republican. He's changed his, his, party, his party registration, I think, something like seven times. Um, because of this anti-politician, anti-elite approach, he's tapped into something among people who feel that um, the system is rigged and who feel the media are not covering stories fairly, such that, frankly, they don't believe what's in the media anymore anyway. So when he attacks somebody, if he attacks Hillary as being a bigot, it covers the possibility that many think that he's a bigot. Um, if he charges that Hillary's uh, foundation is being used incorrectly or that she is using pay-to-play, it causes people to, to forget or be distracted from the fact he is the one that's been paying to play. He's the one that was contributing hmm. hundreds of thousands of dollars to the Hillary campaign, among other. It's, uh, Hillary's just one politician. Uh, Hillary happened to be his senator for a time in New York. Um, this seems to be what's added. It's, it's, it's totally unorthodox, and it's totally unprecedented. The fact that he has no political experience, he uses it as an advantage. Now, I think there's plenty of corruption on his side, too, and we've, I've alluded to a little bit. Much more of this is likely to come out in the, uh, the days to come. How will they spin this story of what Trump Jr. Uh, tweeted about what he said? Oh, by distraction. They don't uh, they remember, at least this is the, the strategy of Trump. He never acknowledges anything, even when he's wrong. It's somebody else's fault. He, he's uh, when he's been uh, pushing the uh, uh, the birther story that uh, President mm -hmm. Obama was born in Kenya for the last five years, and when he finally, in a very terse statement on Friday, when he suggests that's no longer um, operative, 
He then goes on. He doesn't just say it's no longer operative. He goes on to say it's Hillary's fault. Um, I I suspect in this particular case, if he's true to form, he will just blame the media for misinterpreting the story. I I don't think he wants to talk about the Skittle story for very long, and I really don't think the story's going to last. And even though I think it's his style and his his, um, orientation toward the campaign, it's his son that said the stupid thing. Uh, I don't think this is... Yeah, but for the longest time, Barry, they were saying, look how great his kids are. I mean, after the convention, it was, wow, look at his daughter, look at his sons, look, you know, like, he's, he's a great family man here. And then all of a sudden people, we realized people that... people who like him don't seem to care about the negative stuff. Yeah. They think that Hillary is worse. And that Donald Trump just does, never acknowledges fault or responsibility for anything. He doesn't apologize for anything. I gather that's been true in his, uh, his business practices as well. This is a guy who basically bullied people with... Um, uh, threats of lawsuits and uh, litigate well not just litigation i suggested that but with regard to uh you know when he declared bankruptcy he didn't lose money the people he owed money to lost money that, that that's mm. his style um and it's interesting i don't think a majority of americans support this but a very significant minority do um his support staying at the 40 percent level I would imagine that Hillary, and we're coming into uh, next Monday, will be the debate, and I think that may be the most significant event. The first one especially will get the largest viewership. These things usually work that way. Uh, that, in fact, it will be incumbent upon Hillary to, uh, to, to not to go into the name-calling. I, when I say she should go on the attack, it's not so much that she should lower himself to, to his level, but that, in fact, she's going to be much more assertive and aggressive in pointing out the inconsist- inconsistencies, hypocrisy, lack of really any program. Um, and frankly, the uh, the corruption of his own style of operation. Um, uh, and up, up till now, Hillary basically has just sat back and hoped that Trump would defeat himself rather than her having to sort of sully herself with getting into it. And it really hasn't worked up till now. Again, the, the Skittle story, I don't think, is going to last, but I, I don't expect to see an apology. Uh, only that the, um, from the Trump campaign, only that the, the press, as usual, have misinterpreted it, and the press are out to get him, and the press are unfair. And it's of course, a, this is the guy that uses the press more than anybody. That's what I was just about to say. And the press, the, the bias of the press is they want coverage. Just that's like what I was just saying. Any newspaper or TV station wants to get as many listeners or viewers or readers as possible, uh, because you can then make more money by charging advertisers. And Trump is news, and that's why he's been able to basically, this is rolling campaign of, of media attention. Uh, sometimes he's right, more frequently in my mind he's wrong, but nonetheless, never apologize, never explain, just charge that the other guy is even worse. <laughs> exactly. And, and like you said, I mean, I had, I, had, I had written that down. I mean, he takes advantage of the media that he says is so tough on him. I mean, he's playing everybody like a flute. Well, the, yeah, again, the pop, you know, his supporters, that's not everyone. A lot of people, uh, the, the problem with this election, as somebody who, who would uh, hope that uh, Hillary wins at the end of the day, is that his supporters are more enthusiastic, it seems, than the Hillary supporters. Yeah. And that in an election where if the weather's bad or people are not feeling particularly well, the uh, motivated supporters, enthusiastic supporters, are more likely to get out to vote. And that's the concern that certain segments of the population, like young people, what are called millennials, people under the age of... Um, of, of 30 or 35, um, that people like that are not particularly impressed with Hillary. They think she's old-style politics. Many of them, of course, glommed on to uh, Bernie Sanders back when he was a candidate. Uh, Hillary has got to mot- find a way to motivate those people. Up till now, it, she's just hoped that the hostility toward Trump would, would do it. And it may at the end of the day. I mean, she still has a slight lead, but not by very much. The polls had shown, um, I think, the... Um, 538, that's Nate Silver's operation, showed a lead as of yesterday when I was looking of two points. 
nationally, nationally, and the national popular vote, of course, isn't the determination. It's the electoral college, but there is a kind of relationship between the two. Well, well, Hillary's campaign. One and a half. The, well, the latest poll had. Let me ask five. you, Barry, because we're almost out of time here. Will uh, Hillary's campaign touch the Skittles thing at all? I doubt it. I don't think Hillary would do it herself. I think what Hillary's got some great surrogates, people like Elizabeth Warren and certainly Barack Obama and Michelle and so forth. I think those are the people that are going to probably sort of have to do an awful lot of the heavy lifting in the attack upon Trump in the, uh, hmm. the days to come. So I don't think the Skittle story is going to be a major story. In a few days, there'll be other things that will have replaced it. But, um, but there will be other, other utterances like this. Maybe Donald Trump Jr. will shut up for a while. Um, but clearly he does not have political instincts. But then again, his father doesn't have traditional political instincts, and he's gotten away with it. All right, Barry Kay has been with us, political science professor, Wilfrid Laurier University. Barry, always a pleasure. Thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good talking to you. Thank you. It is 1247. Now, the interesting thing is, after the comment was made in regard to Skittles, of course, they came out and basically uh, distanced themselves from the comment. Uh, of course, uh, what uh, Donald Trump Jr. tweeted, if I had a bowl of Skittles and I told you just three would kill you, would you take a handful? Uh, he goes on to say the image says it all. Let's end political correct agenda that doesn't put America first. Uh, uh, Skittles, uh, the people that own them, Wrigley, said Skittles are candy. Refugees are people. We don't feel it's an appropriate uh, analogy. We will respectively refrain from any further commentary as anything we could, anything we say could be uh, misinterpreted as marketing. To talk more about that angle of this, Mark Gordon is with us, marketer. He is with us now. Hello, Mark. How are you today? Great. Thank you. Uh, uh, your thoughts on how Skittles handled this? Well, I would say this is a textbook case of a company handling it absolutely perfectly. And what's interesting to note is that Skittles themselves didn't really say anything. There's no response from them on social media or anything. This was done off of social media by Wrigley, their parent company, mm-hmm. through a press release, not even through social media. Uh, good that they jumped on this so quickly, surprised that they did. No, it was good. It was, it was excellent planning. Um, this could have turned into uh, potentially something that uh, could have gone against them if anyone sensed that they were trying to run with this and turn it into a uh, a potential gain from a media perspective, you know, some free advertising. I think that really would have gone against the company. What they did by basically distancing themselves from it, and and their response was so perfect. I mean, in just a couple of sentences, they basically shot down everything he said. They made him look like a fool, and they um, they stepped away and said, we're not going to have anything to do with this. This is not something we're going to we even want to be a part of in any way. Uh, when, sorry, when you get a hold of something like this, or I guess in, in, in the case of Skittles, it falls in your lap. You really don't have any choice. You've just got to react to it. Uh, is the best bet just to neutralize it, or is it to try to neutralize it and take it one step, or just don't even go there? Well, if they hadn't responded at all, I believe the public perception may have been that they don't disagree with yeah. the statement. Mm. You know, people tend to view things, you know, like like many celebrities when they're asked a, uh, somewhat of a, a personal or controversial question, and the response is, you know, no comment. It just opens up everything to, to people having their own opinion. And I think that would have been the case here had Wrigley or Skittles not responded at all. But the fact that the brand Skittles chose to, to not comment and let the head office do it, it freed Skittles as a brand to continue marketing and, and participating 
uh, on social media the way they always have. If you go to Skittle's Twitter feed, there's no mention of this whatsoever, and mm. they're just moving right along with Talk Like a Pirate Day and the whole bit, and, you know, it's business as usual. Mm. It was a great move on the parent company to do the dirty work for them. If you are Donald Trump's camp, how do you spin this? <laughs> wow, that's a loaded question. Uh, if I was Donald Trump's camp, um, I would probably say that Donald Trump Jr. does what Donald Trump Jr. wants to do. Mm. And I would probably say, hey, you know what, there's a, a significant portion of the population who would agree with him, and if you don't agree with him, that's cool, that's your right, but, you know, he's his own person. Mm. So, in a sense, you know, I suppose Donald Trump in many ways would do what Wrigley did, where he'd say, look, this is, this is his thing, not my thing, and, you know, how you choose to... To interpret that is totally up to you, you know, you being the American public. Uh, Donald Trump has an amazing ability to walk an extremely fine line by not offending everyone, just almost everyone, but it leaves enough in the other camp to bring them back, doesn't he? Yeah, it does. Uh, what I think would be more interesting is how Hillary Clinton, mm-hmm. you know, latches onto this, if she's trying to or will try to spin this. Uh, into something to further demonstrate Donald Trump's feelings towards, um, you know, the whole Syrian refugee situation or immigrants in general. My advice, or I guess, well, yeah, my advice, if Hillary were to ask me, uh, would be to not touch that. Yeah. Actually, to, to really distance herself, because I think uh, if she tries to latch onto this and, and spin it in something, uh, you know, that benefits her, I think there could be uh, some negative feedback on that as well. So, Plus, here's what I, I think the sticking point is for that one, Mark, is that, it, as you mentioned earlier, it's not him. It's a member of the family. And I could easily say, I could easily see Trump coming back and saying, so you want to talk about members of the family and what they're doing honorably and not? And off, off he'd go. I mean, mm-hmm. he'd start tearing apart Bill or, or someone else. You know what I mean? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. If she doesn't say anything, then it doesn't give him... Uh, you know, fodder to work with. So, yeah, I agree. It's it's, it's one of those things that, uh, um, you know, Wrigley handled very well. I think Hillary would do well to, to ignore it and um, for for um, Donald to, to just say, you know what, my kid's got his own opinion. Yeah. Uh, a political science professor, Barry Kay from Wilfrid Laurier, we just have it on, had on uh, alluded to that for Donald Trump, uh, his feelings were any press is good press. Is that the case, especially in this election? Or is it a case of as long as you don't offend everybody, you're fine? Well, pertaining to this situation, you know, kind of labeling and grouping every uh, Syrian refugee as, you know, bad Skittles, so to speak, um, you got to keep in mind that a significant portion of the population that supports Trump probably agrees totally with this. Yeah, yeah. You know, in which case, perhaps it will help them, you know, and I think the people who didn't like him before are probably still not going to like him, and, and it yeah. just reinforced their opinion. Uh, can Trump spin this and blame the media? The media is spending too much time talking about these things that he... Well, every time he shoots him in the, himself in the foot, the media seems to report it. Um, is it the media that's that's against him, something that he seems to play so well? Uh, I think he likes to bag on the media. Uh, I think for something like this, though, if his handlers are smart, they'll tell him just, 
you know, to, to fluff it off as, as, you know, my, my crazy kid off doing, you know, whatever he wants and let's move on to bigger things. That's what I would, you know, think his handlers would tell him. Whether he does that is <laughs> a whole nother story. Uh, is, uh, is this something that's going to last or it will be over in another 24 hours? Yeah. 24 hours. God. Yeah. I, I, I see. And is that because, is that because it's not a significant event or is that because there'll be something coming in to replace it? Um, well, I think what worked so well is the fact that Wrigley's really stopped it before it started. Yeah. And if Hillary doesn't respond to it. You know, other than the sort of the shock factor which we're experiencing now with the media, there, there, there's nothing to continue. There's, you know, with regards to like tomorrow, there's nothing more to write about. You brought responds to it. You brought up an interesting point: how if the candidate does not want to say something, they'll field it off to one of their subordinates and get them to do it. Uh, whether if you know Hillary gets Barack or Barack speaks on this or someone else or maybe Bill or, or what have you, do you think that maybe it worked the other way with this statement? Do you think this is actually Donald Trump's statement and he said, "Hey, Junior, go out and drop this bomb and see what happens." You know, from what I've seen of Donald Trump, I don't think he'd pass up the chance to, to say something like that uh, if given the chance. I don't think he'd pass it off to his son. He seems like the kind of guy who's got way too big an ego to uh, to let it go. In fact, I could see him saying something like this, you know, in person, in front of a, an audience. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You think? Yeah. Well, again, as you brought up, you know, putting it off to other people, maybe that's exactly what he was trying to do. Hey, this is too hot for me to say, but why don't you go over there and say it, son? <laughs> I think his ego would prevent him from doing that. Yeah, good point. Uh, Mark Gordon has been with us, marketer, expert, and speaker, and, of course, talking about Skittles and their response to what Trump Jr. is saying which was Skittles are like candy, or sorry, that uh, he was uh, comparing refugees to Skittles and saying if there was three uh, bad ones in a bowl, would you take uh, a handful of them? And, of course, Skittles responding by Skittles are candy, refugees are people. Uh, The saga continues, uh, and I'm sure there'll be another one by the end of the week. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. You know, you got to feel... Sort of, sort of sorry for, well, I feel sorry for everyone over in the UK because it's obviously been an incredibly divisive time as the whole Brexit thing uh, starts its process after, uh, I think, a, a vote that surprised a lot of people. I don't think a lot of people saw past the nose on their face and went ahead and voted with emotion. And now we find, uh, what there was just a poll taken recently where four and a half million people said that they wanted another referendum. Let's keep, get, let's keep holding a referendum till we get what we want. And then, of course, we'll have to hold another one because the other half didn't get what they wanted. Uh, Could there be a second Scottish independence referendum? Uh, I believe what happened was they went through all of this just before uh, the UK and the EU went through it all. And everybody voted to stay in the UK because then the UK was part of the EU. But then the UK votes to leave the EU, but Scotland still wants in. Confused? Uh, let's bring in Paul Hamilton, Associate Professor of Comparative Politics in the Department of Political Science down at Brock University. He is with us now. Hello, Paul. How are you today? Good. How are you? Good. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Um, how is Scotland feeling post-Brexit? How are they feeling with all of this? Well, it's funny. I had an opportunity to speak with an academic from uh, Dundee the other day, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a bit odd. There's uh, 
kind of a initially I think there was shock, um, but right after that, um, as you probably know, nothing has really changed because Article 50 hasn't been triggered. The economy seems to have sort of recovered. Um, so I think people are just sort of uh, waiting and wondering what uh, the future brings. Uh, Scotland feels uh, a little gypped in all of this because they went through it just prior. Give us a little bit of back history there and what Scotland went through just prior to the Brexit vote. Well, they've had four elections or four votes in the last two years. Um, The 2014, September 2014 vote um, happened uh, after the uh, Westminster government agreed to uh, allow a referendum on a yes or no, straight up uh, independence or status quo referendum on uh, uh, Scottish independence. And as you, as your listeners know, um, about 45% of people voted for separation, and 55% voted to remain part of the UK. And so, uh, initially after this. Um, there seemed to be a bit of a surge in support for Scottish independence, uh, oddly. And uh, that led to, in the 2015 election, an an election uh, at the national level for the UK Parliament, uh, almost every Scottish seat was won by the Scottish National Party, which is committed to uh, separation from the UK. I think there were only like three seats that went to other parties. And... um, uh, then, of course, we had Brexit, and Scotland was one of three areas that voted to remain uh, with Northern Ireland and um, uh, the City of London. And uh, now we're sort of waiting to see what happens. What does Scotland see that uh, the Brexit people don't? What does Scotland see in this for them that some in the U.K. don't? That is, uh, it, what do they see in the European Union? Yes, well, it's a free market uh, or a free trade zone, so right away, um, Scotland is an exporting nation. Most of their manufactured and agricultural exports go to Europe. Um, and so, of course, this is a major market. Of course, the whole UK is a major market for Scotland, um, but Europe has uh, always been this market for them. Uh, there's regional development funding that goes to really more to Wales and and Northern Ireland, but some still goes to uh, Scotland. Um, It provides stability, and for Scottish nationalists, the European Union represents a kind of safety net. So if they were to become an independent state within the European Union, they could use the euro, um, and and so they, they, they think the transition to separate statehood would be easier. Does it make more sense for Scotland to separate now that the UK is out of the European Union? Well, it certainly is. That would be the argument of the nationalists, yeah. who also control the Scottish Parliament now uh, by a, a number of seats. Um, yes, they would say that uh, uh, it's a calamity to move out of, uh, the, out of the European Union for the UK, and that because Scotland voted uh, by a majority to remain, that result ought to be respected, and uh, they ought to be able to, to stay within in Europe. Hmm. Where does this leave the rest of the U.K.? I mean, um, it was already quite divided. 
um, as far as certainly a lot closer than what it was in Scotland. So uh, now that that Scotland wants to break away, how does that leave people feeling within the UK? Well, I I think it's just a dizzying (laughs) series of blows to what for a long time was assumed to be a very stable uh, multinational union state. Um, And it has in the last uh, arguably 20 years um, experienced an enormous amount of change uh, internally with the establishment of parliaments in um, Northern Ireland, Wales, and Scotland, um, but also uh, with the prospect now of Scotland leaving uh, Britain out of the EU. Um, There's also the possibility um, if Scotland can pull this off, maybe Northern Ireland could remain in the EU too. Right. Uh, so where does that leave the UK if the EU starts to grow that way? I mean, yeah. it, doesn't it make it look like their decision was wrong? Yes. And, and I have to say, uh, um, I, I'm not convinced that they're going to leave the European Union. I'm actually thinking uh, at some point uh, a way will be found to... Uh, either not trigger Article 50 at all, or after a certain period of time of negotiations, holding an election, maybe a different party comes in promising to mm-hmm. reverse uh, Brexit or not act on it, and uh, all of this will go away. That being said, uh, that obviously there was a poll taken a while ago that said like four and a half million people would like another referendum. Uh, but everybody pretty much quashed that and said, you know what, we've made our decision. We can't keep watering down referendums and holding them. Uh, we've made our decision. We're moving forward. Uh, we, we continually hear that uh, out of both the EU and the UK. Uh, but that being said, uh, has the, the time it's taken to trigger, trigger Article 15, does that give us some sort of indication? Or just because this is so complex, it's going to take a long time anyway? Uh, you might be right on both, you know. Um, it's enormously complex. Imagine all of the issue areas that have to be dealt with, uh, fisheries, energy. Um, they're not in the Eurozone, so that makes it a little easier. They're not in Schengen, that makes it a little easier. On the other hand, um, the common agricultural policy, the transfer of money from Britain to the EU, um, all of the uh, uh, political representation on the Commission, the European Parliament, all very complicated. And, and the other thing, too, um, your listeners might not know, one of the things that has to happen now is the U.K. government has to come to what we would call a common position. They need to negotiate with the parliaments of Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. What do you want out of the Brexit? Uh, what are your demands? What are your uh, red lines? Because when the U.K. goes to negotiate in Brussels, should they trigger Article 50, they're going to have to have a, a complete package and know exactly what these various other parts of the U.K. Uh, want. Especially after it was obvious that people didn't really have a plan B after this referendum. Exactly. There seems to have been almost no thought. I almost think that for some of them, like Boris Johnson, they never thought it was going to happen. Yeah. They were posturing because I think Boris Johnson wanted to be prime minister. So do you think that this may become so complicated that they will see there is no advantage to leaving and just say, you know what, let's start over? I hope so. I, I really do. Um, uh, there, 
there's a window of two years for them to negotiate this exit, and I don't see how they can possibly do it. If you look at the Canada-EU free trade agreement, uh, which is not complete yet, it's been seven years, you know, um, this is going to be really, really complicated. And there's also going to be, I think, a lot of legal challenges <coughs> along the way by, uh, again, the parliaments of uh, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland, um, possibly um, even, uh, you know, there has to be a parliamentary vote on this, on the outcome of Brexit, because the U.K. will have to uh, essentially uh, dissolve the European Communities Act of 1972. You could imagine a, a rebellion by MPs saying, "No, we're not. We're not going to do that." That being Brexit would stall. That being said, uh, how does the EU feel thinking that it could end up with new members, and are they willing to? Uh, do they have an appetite to bring the UK back into the fold? It seems to me they just want to shut this down and move on. Well, I, I don't think so. I I think if they could, they'd rather the UK was still in, yeah. as irritating as the UK is in the EU. Um, and remember, nothing has happened yet. Absolutely nothing has happened yet. There have been no changes in the treaty status uh, of the UK. Um, but uh, I just read um, one of the lead negotiators for the EU uh, on the Brexit file uh, is quite open to the idea of Scottish um, continued membership of the EU. Um, they'd be very happy with that. Now, that being said, this vote, uh, meaning Brexit, was a lot closer than what the Scotland vote was. Uh, if this process slows down or stops or even starts reversing, there was still, you know, uh, a majority that said they wanted to leave. Do you think enough of those people have changed their minds? Uh Enough, peop- uh, enough uh, people who voted for exit have uh, have they changed their minds? Yeah. Um, possibly. Um, you also have to remember too that about um, I'm trying to recall the exact, I think twenty eight percent of the population didn't even vote. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think you were right earlier when you said you know there's like a, there won't be another referendum on on the EU uh, UK wide. That's not going to happen. The only possibility might be a referendum on the outcome of the negotiations. But uh, I don't see any, any uh, you know, mulligan on this uh, June 23rd referendum. Uh, are people just fatigued beyond fatigue on this issue? I mean, do they just, everybody shut up and go away? I yeah, mean, are I they do, at that I point yet? They, I think they are. And I also think what adds to this is the absolute uncertainty that surrounds all of it. So if you ask an economist... Uh, what is the outcome? You get two opinions. Mm. Um, lawyers have different views. You have the, the media, all of these people in Europe talking about it, and uh, nobody seems to know really um, what's ahead. Or even what's in the mind of Theresa May, the Prime Minister, um, who's keeping her cards very close to her uh, and not really revealing um which is kind of odd right there, because that lends you to believe that, you know, why aren't we just moving forward with this? Well, again, I, I really think this is going to require a lot of pre-negotiation yeah. before they, because as soon as they trigger it, the two-year clock starts ticking. So I think they really want to get a solidified, crystallized position, but it's going to take a while um, to figure out 
um, uh, exactly what they they can live with and what they can't. The fact that the economy has stabilized, of course, after the vote, things started to go south for a bit. Uh, the fact that things have stabilized, how does that change the discussion? I don't think it really does. Um, I think markets are kind of short-term. Yeah. Well, markets don't think per se, but um, they sort of act in a short-term fashion. Uh, so I don't really think that should comfort us very much. I think once the process starts, if it does, um, we're going to go back to uh, perhaps uh, you know what the pound dropping and other kinds of economic uncertainty. The pound is still, by the way, you know, at a 30-year low, um, at least partly because of this. At what point will this be dragging everyone's economy down so much that they will have to act either way just because of the uncertainty? Well, you know, I'm not sure that it's really having much of an effect at the moment. Um, so they can afford to drag this out? Well, that's once the process starts, mm-hmm. I think then you're right. There's going to be an incentive, um, if only from a financial economic perspective, get this done as quickly as possible uh, in order to uh, sort of restore confidence in markets. Uh, so that might that might speed it up a bit. That's possible. So your your gut feeling is this ain't over yet, though. No, I don't think so. I I am sure that a number of Plan Bs, Cs, Ds, and Es are being con- contemplated in Westminster and elsewhere. And I don't think we I don't think it's over yet. I don't think we've seen the end of this. Paul Hamilton has been with us, Associate Professor of Comparative Politics in the Department of Political Science at Brock University. Paul, as always, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.